All right. Good morning. Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Welcome. The house is full. Amen. Visitors with us. We're so glad we have many visitors with us this morning. Thank you for being here to worship with us. We hope that you do feel comfortable and a part of our church family. Amen, family? Amen. Amen. So would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew 21, please? Matthew 21, as we continue in this wonderful gospel, um, we are still in this scene of where Jesus is responding to uh, the challenges of his authority. We're looking at the second parable in this series of three. I mean, this morning, we, we, we actually come to a parable that further shows Christ's authority. And that's what I want us to understand here in this parable of the tenants. If you're able to stand, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 33 through 41, even though the bulletin says 39. I decided to go on a couple of verses here on this one. So let us begin Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to, an, to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Mm. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we thank you for your word always. And your son, Jesus Christ, is teaching a profound lesson here, not only to these chief priests and these Pharisees and these scribes, but also to us today. Lord, this is a foundational teaching of the kingdom, your kingdom, and the responsibility of the citizens of that kingdom, and the authority and the the responsibility of, of your son, Jesus Christ, and you, dear Lord, the master of the house. And so, God, this morning, I pray that as we understand your word, that you would give us that understanding, that as we listen to the words of your son, Jesus, teach, that you would teach us as well. And so, God, help us this morning, prick our hearts, draw us to your loving embrace, remind us of the responsibilities that we have as citizens of your kingdom, but also remind us, Lord, of your compassion and your patience. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Have a seat. I mean, this morning, again, we come to a parable that, as I've said, further shows Christ's authority, but his authority over property rights and his love, really, for those who dwell in his kingdom. We're going to see both of these in this teaching. The parable, the par- this one, the parable of the ungrateful tenants, along with the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed, 
are the only three of Jesus' parables that all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share. As such, because of that, I, I think today's passage is of the greatest importance to understanding the kingdom of heaven. If the three synoptic gospels include this in all, all of their gospels, they did so out of importance, and I think the Lord directed this for a reason. So we should stand at this, not physically, but stand at attention in our hearts to say, okay, this is important. What is here? Remember that this parable we're looking at after the one we looked at last week, it it follows the parable of the two sons. And this is a continual rebuttal and a response to those chief priests and the elders of the Jerusalem temple. I mean, these great men, remember, they challenged Jesus' authority after he purged the temple. I mean, let's not forget that Jesus taught in the temple often. I mean, most certainly each time he was in the great holy city of Jerusalem, he purposely went to the temple to teach. And and this series of parables in Matthew 21 and Matthew 22 are actually part of one teaching moment between Jesus, the Son of God, and these chief priests who failed in God's eyes as the true guardians of his house and of his law. I mean, the first parable that we looked at last week showed the consequences between a repentant son and a non-repentant son. This parable, the second parable, today's passage, actually shows us the consequences of supposedly trusted tenant farmers who really oppose the servants of the master's house, who are his representatives. I mean, Jesus, again, he teaches these chief priests and elders, that's what I want us to remember. These parables are spoken in the context of chief priests and elders and scribes and Pharisees who challenged Jesus' authority. That's what these parables are, their response to that. And Jesus is teaching something very profound here. He, He again teaches them by illustration and inductive questioning. We've got some homeschoolers in here. Do you ever do that with your kids at home? Challenge them with questions and answers back and forth and trying to understand. That's how we study scripture. We can, we can understand scripture this way by asking questions of it. And Jesus is doing this with these chief priests. Let me ask you a question. Remember, they, they challenged him and he would not give them a direct answer. Instead, he said, what do you think? And then he goes into these series of parables. And even through the parables we're going to see here, he even further asked them questions. What do you think of this? Because he wants them to come up with the right answer uh, instead of being force-fed the answer. Because if, if if the answer is revealed in someone's heart, they'll grasp it more intently, won't they? If you have to lecture somebody and shake your finger at them, they'll just shut you down. And I think Jesus here, even with these chief priests who really didn't deserve a direct answer from God because they didn't want a direct answer from God, Jesus says, here's some parables. What do you think? That's what he's doing here. Because back in Matthew 21, 23, these, these, these chief priests, they, they, they come to Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus' response, he, was, he responds by challenging these men on their understanding of God's law and of the prophets as it relates to the coming Messiah and the new covenant. They were missing it. Matthew's gospel seems to be presenting these teaching moments, especially this one, this series of three parables 
while he's teaching in the temple. He, this is a teaching moment that Matthew, I think, gives in an intentional sequence. The lesson from the first parable of the two sons led to this understanding that the first son who first defied his father was the one who in the end truly did his father's will because he had changed his mind. That was in verse 31. The first one, the first parable represented the tax collectors. This first son, he represented the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners who in turn represent all rebellious and sinful people who do repent and change their mind and actions. And the second son who claimed he was going to do what the father said in his actions showed he really wasn't. Now we're coming here, this second lesson in this second parable of the ungrateful tenants leads to this understanding that the master of the house over the vineyard will put these wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. This is in verse 41. I mean, in other words, if God gives the responsibility of care over his vineyard to someone who fails in that responsibility, then God, the master of the house, will give that responsibility to someone else who will. This is the lesson here in this parable. I mean, there's much in this parable, too, about the fundamental Christian worldview. I mean, that is, how does the gospel narrative, the Christian way of thinking, view this world and our place in it? How does this passage give us truthful understanding of the gospel and of the kingdom of heaven? Remember, there's four tenets in Christian worldview that can be the foundation for all of your thinking biblically and how it applies to this world we live in. There is the creation, there is the fall, there is redemption, and then restoration. Those four tenets of Christian worldview are gospel-centered tenets of the message of the gospel throughout Scripture. You can take those four points and apply it to any thought, any question, any challenge that this secular world gives us because it comes from Scripture. We're going to see that in this parable. Now, let me caution you. As I was praying and working through this parable for the last couple of weeks, I had Nathan, I'm going to change up the schedule of the sermon, okay? Because Nathan takes care of the bulletins. I don't do this to him too often, but I'm going to throw him off here. Because I had planned on only being in this parable for this week and next week, but I'm afraid we're going to be in here much longer. Is that okay? All right. Is that okay, Sovereign Grace family? I'm sorry. I mean, you, you called me to be your pastor, and, and the Lord's given me a whole lot in here, and I'm, I'm working through a lot of it. There's a lot here for us to chew on and to meditate on in this one parable. So if you're okay by landing in these verses for about three or four weeks, is that okay with you guys? We might get through one verse today, maybe two. Y'all okay with that? All right, strap on the seatbelts and let's go, all right? I mean, this parable speaks, when we look at this parable, think about this, the four points of Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This parable speaks to the calling, the fall, and the redemption of Israel as God's chosen people, and how this failed status is restored through the Son and the true church. I mean, verses 40 and 41, well, we have to be cautious here. When we read verses 40 and 41, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. We're going to get to that. There's a lot there that we'll unpack. But one thing I want to be cautious of us with us here 
is that these two verses have led many in church history to interpret an anti-Semitic outcome for Israel. And then we must be cautious not to glean an anti-Semitic exegesis here. You know what I mean by that? In other words, we cannot look at these verses and look at those of the Jewish faith, those who come through the line of Israel in a negative light. Yes, there's falling there. Yes, there's failure there. But if we go to anti-Semitism, I mean, this kind of interpretation in Scripture has led to a lot of abuse in the church history. We've got to be careful here on these two verses. Fair enough? We'll get to that later. But let's look here in verse 33. Another, here's what Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay, this one verse. I might be able to get through this in 30 minutes. We'll see. Y'all ready? Let's see what's here. Let's unpack this one verse. I mean, this introduction to the parable, I mean, it's a clear presentation of those tenets to the gospel and Christian worldview that I just mentioned to you. There are six action verbs in this one verse which describes activities of the master of the house, the landlord, if you will. Now, who is this master of the house? I mean, the word here is oikodespotes, master, that word of despot. That's the idea here, one who has total control and authority over his house. Now, we think of the term despot in a negative light when we apply that word to uh, despotic uh, nation leaders, right, who are cruel, like Hitler, right? We're like uh, Saddam Hussein. We think of them, those as despots. So there is a negative understanding of this word, but in this context, it's not a negative. This master of the house, he had total authority and sovereignty over his house and over his vineyard. There's a reason that word was used here in the Greek. Master of his house. Who is he? What does he do here in verse 33? This master of the house who is in charge of everything, he planted a vineyard. He built a hedge or a fence. He dug a wine press. He built a watchtower. He leased the vineyard after he built all this infrastructure. He leases it to tenant farmers to take responsibility and care of it. And then this master of the house goes away into another country. I mean, I think Jesus tells this parable intentionally to chief priests and Pharisees and scribes who would have certainly understood the prophet Isaiah. If they understood the Mosaic law and they understood the prophets and they were great learned men of the word, they would have understood Isaiah chapter 5. So if you want to flip over there, Jesus is telling this parable, I think, to really drive on a point. Because Isaiah chapter 5 speaks of someone establishing a vineyard. A special people who are to produce fruit and therefore wine for all the nations to take notice. They were called as a special people, a chosen people, an elect people with favored status among all nations, just as these tenant farmers in Jesus' parable were granted favor and were given trusted rights and responsibilities over the master's vineyard. So turn to Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7, and let's see the similarities to Jesus' parable here. Look again in verse 1. 
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You seeing some similarities in Isaiah's words in Isaiah five with Jesus's parable. I think they parallel very. I mean, Jesus is emphasizing the word. The great prophet Isaiah, he's telling these chief priests and these Pharisees in a parable what they should have already understood in Isaiah's prophecy. I mean, notice in both Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, and Matthew 21, verse 33, that the master of the house, the landlord, this my beloved, Isaiah uses that word, invests much of his own time, his own money, and his effort into building a beautiful vineyard. Anybody ever invested in property like that? You've built it up. You've had, I know some folks, you've got farms. You probably have poured in blood, sweat, and tears for years and decades building up what you currently have. You understand the context here. If you had a house that you've built or a business that you've built or whatever it is, you can understand the blood, sweat, and the tear, the investment of time and money and effort into building something beautiful. I mean, this master of the house, my beloved, this landlord, he did the work of making a productive vineyard to provide for its protection and its welfare. I mean, he chose the best location. Isaiah 5, verse 1, he chose the best location on a very fertile hill. And then in Isaiah 5, 2, he planted it with choice vines. And then in verses 5, and then again in verse 2, he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And then in Matthew 21, 33, we see that he built a hedge, a fence, or a wall around it. I mean, I think this helps us to see the first tenet of the gospel and the Christian worldview that we talked about. All that is belongs to the Creator who made it. Amen? In this parable, in Matthew 21, all that is, the master of the house, belongs to him. Because in Isaiah 5.1, it begins, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. It all belongs to the Creator. And Jesus is making that point here in His parable too. There was a master of the house. And look at what He did in verse 33. Who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You're hearing the rhythm and this cadence there of the pattern of the checkoff list. Here's what all he has done. 
I mean, I think this helps us to see this first tenet, again, of creation in the Christian worldview. All things begin with creation, which means there had to be a creator. You create it, it's yours. You create it, you have some authority over it. You create it, you, you, you kind of, you kind of manage it, however you want to manage it. If that means leasing it out to people that you call special, with special responsibilities, that's the master's right. And then there's responsibilities. In Isaiah 5 verse 7, it tells us exactly who the beloved is and who the vineyard is. The beloved is the Lord of hosts because he is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 7 is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, the choice vines. Notice the imagery here. Now the, the first tenet of the gospel is that the creator... The Lord of hosts created all that is, all that belongs to him. And if all of creation is his, then likewise, all that he establishes in this creation to tend it and to care for it, to build and produce within it are his too. Everything. In the context of Jesus's parable, the master of the house carefully prepared his vineyard. In Isaiah 5, 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard, what I have not done in it? I mean, the prophet Isaiah is declaring the master, the beloved who created all of this, who built all of this. He's done beyond. There's nothing more. What more was there to do for my vineyard, what I have not done in it? Nothing more can be added to it. He's done it. It's complete. The great work of God as creator in the world, the plan of God is the formation of a chosen people, a people of God for the proclamation of salvation for the world. It's all his. Israel failed in this status as the chosen people over and over and over again. The failure of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who challenged Jesus are the same. They come in this failure to be the guardians of the law and the guardians of God's house does not come from any failure of God at all. I mean, God's preserving love is clear here. The failure comes because of sin's nature. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read, All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Any of us guilty of that? Right. How many parents in this room lament a child who has gone astray and has turned his or her own way? Our Father in heaven understands that. But notice here in Isaiah 53, 6 as well, that even though all like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned everyone to his own way. And despite that, and the Lord has laid on him, the son of the master, the iniquity of us all. That's what's coming out in this parable as well. I mean, it was part of God's goodness to entrust the care of his vineyard Israel to the work of the priests and the ministers. He leased the care of his chosen people to these men of special calling in the priesthood. They are the tenants, the farmers who lease the vineyard from the master of the house in verse 33. 
I mean, I think it's important to close out this, this exegesis, if you will, of verse 33 with this observation. The master of the house and of the vineyard never relinquishes ownership of the vineyard that he worked so tirelessly to build. These tenant farmers lease the vineyard. It does not belong to them. Does anyone lease a place to live? That place doesn't belong to you if you lease it. You cannot knock out walls and paint the walls unless the landlord gives you permission. That's one of the reasons that it took us so long to expand this sanctuary space, folks. We leased this building for two and a half years. We couldn't do what we wanted. But now we can. You see what we've done in this room? When it belongs to you, you can do whatever you want. But even in this context, folks, we do not do everything we want in this building or in this church. We still belong to a master, don't we? I mean, if the vineyard in this parable represents Israel and the men of Judah, the pleasant planting that we saw in Isaiah 5, I mean, the master of the house retains all property rights and economic rights for the fruit that is produced. He can do whatever he wants with the production of it. He can work out whatever agreement he wants with the tenants. The tenant farmers merely lease what is not theirs for the exchange of labor and maybe a shared profit if the master determines it. I mean, lastly, look here in verse 33. Let's read it one more time. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants. And what does he do? Went into another country or went to a far country, some translations. I mean, we see that the master of the house went away into another country. I mean, this line may be falsely interpreted, and I think it has been falsely interpreted in, in church history, that God has somehow removed himself from the operation of the world that he created and just kind of has left it to us or left it to Satan to do whatever. But I think it's better to understand this phrase of he went away into another country a little differently. I mean... Jesus chose these words for a purpose. Jesus spoke these words very carefully to these men. If the creator or the master of the house has removed his control and his rights over this world, then Jesus is in a weakened position as the Son of God. Because the Son of God actively works in this world. He does. In, in no way has humanity taken over ownership and control of this world, nor has Satan taken lordship over this created order. God retains all rights and all ownership. And I think this point was driven home to me in my prayer and my study these last couple of weeks because I have heard, I mean, I, I don't, I don't peruse YouTube for YouTube preachers very often. I just don't. I'm just, can I just encourage you all? If you're browsing YouTube for YouTube preachers trying to learn something, you're not learning squat. Can I just say that boldly from the pulpit? Uh, do not trust YouTube preachers. Some of them are good. 99% of them are junk. And this one particular one that just came up in a feed that I just wasn't even looking for, it just kind of popped up. I thought, okay, what's this guy saying? Because he was kind of talking about the master and the lordship of this world. I thought, okay, let's see what's going there. Here's what he said. He said that, that God cannot do anything in this world because he is no longer the master of it. Satan is. 
This was a preacher saying this. And the only way that God can legally do anything in His own created order is if His people ask. Very subtle, isn't it? What he has just said is that God is no longer sovereign over what he made. And let me remind you, there's a term here called God, God, God made everything ex nihilo. You know what ex nihilo means? That means God, God made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He spoke it. Do you and I have the power to speak and something be made? You have to borrow material that you did not create to make anything that you want to make. That's the power God has. He speaks and it happens. And this preacher on this YouTube clip, I, I was just cringe. I only, it's like a one minute clip and I just, ugh. How, I mean, how can you even think that God is somehow bound and he, and he cannot control this world because Satan is now the owner of it? Okay, Sorry, that's a rabbit trail, but I thought it important to bring out in verse 33. I mean, the phrase, and he went into another country, does not mean that God has withdrawn his presence from his creation. Not in any way can you interpret that phrase, that God has somehow withdrawn his presence from his creation. That is not what it means. The phrase, and went into another country, is used by Jesus to stress something. It's to stress the responsibility of those left to tend the vineyard. That's all it means. The master of the house goes into another country, and Jesus is saying this only to emphasize that the ones who are left to tend the vineyard, who have leased the vineyard, now have a greater responsibility placed upon them because the master has chosen to give them that responsibility. If we say that the master of the vineyard has abandoned or left it to us alone, then we forget that later in the parable, who comes back to the vineyard? The servants and the slaves of the master at his direction. And then the son at the master's direction. The master has not left any control. He still controls it all. I mean, the love of God here is so clear. I mean, after all, these tenant farmers agreed to lease, not own the vineyard. The vineyard does not belong to them, yet they act as if it does. The love of God above in another country and the responsibility of the people of God below are just reinforced here in this last verse this last portion of verse 33. Let's not take that phrase that the master has gone away into another country into a false interpretation and say, like the deists say, that God created all of the creation and the universe and has now kind of withdrew his presence to kind of let it run. You know, that's the deism way of thinking. And it's, and it's, it's a very subtle way of thinking that is still very much present in our world. And I have to say, in a many of, in many church circles, that's how they think. God has, he's just kind of, it's kind of like he had a top, a toy. You know, you know those tops? Kids don't know what that is now because it's all digital toys now. But like a real toy that you kind of spin and it goes, it goes and 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 it goes. That's the idea of deism. God the creator somehow spun the top of all creation and now he's withdrawn himself to let the, let the spinning just kind of run itself out. That is a false 
Christian idea. It's not even Christian. (laughs) It's not biblical. It's not gospel. God is sovereign over everything that he has made. He is sovereign over every tenant of his vineyard that he has agreed to allow and given them the responsibility over what he has established. So if you ever have a challenge from somebody in the secular world, a secular idea that God is not present, that everything's just kind of running on its own, understand that that's a false idea. That's not in this parable. Amen, brothers and sisters? All right. You know, we did pretty good there on verse 33. Y'all want to jump into verse 34 a little bit? Anybody tired yet? Okay. Let's look here in verse 33 through 36. I mean, sorry, 34 through 36. When the season of fruit drew near, he, the master of the house, sent his servants to the tenants to get its fruit, or to get his fruit. Underline in my translation, ESV, to get whose fruit? His fruit. Verse 35, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Let's understand what's going on here. In these verses, we see the second of the tenets of the Christian worldview in the gospel. Verse 33 spells out clearly the creation. Verses 34 through 36 spells out the fall. Notice that the master of the house sends servants, or really the proper translation is slaves, to the tenant farmers to take his portion of the fruit, his fruit. To honor the lease agreement, the master of the house has no intention really of taking all the fruit, even though he could. That would be evil. But a lease agreement for tenant farmers is that they would share in a small percentage of the profits with the landlord. And again, the landlord sets those terms. Yet let's not misunderstand the parable of the scenario here. The master does not want to reward the dedication of those who labor in the... I'm sorry, the master does want to reward the dedication of those who labor in the vineyard. That's why he sends the servants to go collect even his portion of the fruit. This is his fruit. But at the same time, he's not going to leave these tenants destitute by taking everything. He's going to say, well done. I'll take what is mine, but you have more than you need to survive. Amen? That was the reason that he sends his servants to go collect his fruit. But the master of the house, although he withdrew from the physical presence in the vineyard, he still had ownership rights of the fruit. He still had ownership rights of the vineyard. He does not come himself, but he sends servants or slaves on his behalf to conduct the business of receiving his profits of his own vineyard that he himself had invested in, built, and protected. I mean, there are two sendings here of servants in verses 34 through 36. Notice this. There's two sendings. Both show the patient love of God. I mean, he would have the right to sweep in and destroy these thieves, wouldn't he? He would have the right to sweep in and destroy the thieving tenant farmers after first sending and beating and killing and stoning the first set of slaves that go, these first representatives. The men of the master or the men of God were killed stoned, beaten. And the master of the house would have every right to sweep in and wipe them clean, wouldn't he? I mean, I think it's important to pause here to understand the context of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus chooses the expressing 
of two sendings of prophets or men of God. That's who these are. These slaves here, I mean, clearly are the prophets of old, the men of God that God sends to the fallen creation. In the ancient world, we've got to think about this. God chooses two sendings of prophets and then the son, the third sending, in a, for a reason here. In the ancient world of pagan religion, the gods were very short-tempered. Anybody studied ancient mythologies and Greek and Roman gods and some of maybe even the ancient Far East and Near East gods? It's The gods of those pagan religions are not very compassionate. You mess with them, they'll, they'll stomp you flat quickly. Okay? And that would have been the understanding here. In the ancient world, the gods were very short-tempered. Anyone who rebelled against the gods would be totally destroyed by fire or the crushing hand of these pagan deities. That's the context here of this parable being spoken in this world. As a matter of fact, the justice system of ancient societies and even the pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law demanded swift justice against the blasphemer. But what do we see here in the parable? Patience. Three types of sendings. Even, even in the ancient dialogues of Plato, uh, the, there's, a, there's a dialogue called the Euthyphro, and I teach this in my ethics classes often. It explores the tension of justice and what is called the divine command theory that demanded all murderers must, must, must be brought before a tribunal of justice as the gods demand swift retribution and execution. That's the idea here. So for Jesus to speak of two sendings of servants and then a third sending of a son to the vineyard shows a radical concept that these hearers of the parable would have woken up to. Wait a minute. The master of the house sends representatives more than once? That would have been a, that would have been a wake-up call as they listened to this. That would have been radical to hear that. I mean, anyone hearing the parable would be shocked that the master of the house would have the patience to send a second wave of servants after the first sending resulted in beatings and killings and stonings. But to go even further, this parable now speaks of a third sending in verse 36. Let's read that. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. You see here in verse 36, that second sending of servants. Now the master of the house in verse 37 Finally, he sent his son to them. In verse 37, he sends his son to these thieving murderers. Now they're, now they're no longer just thieves. Now they're murderers. Because the first two rounds of representatives were not only ignored, they were killed. I mean, I think the patience of the master of the house further shows how God will permit the sin of the fallen to show itself. This is part of the problem of evil debate that many atheists want to argue. Well, if God is so good, why does he allow evil in the world? I mean, that really shows, you know what the answer is, Christians? Because God is showing his compassion and his patience. He's allowing our sin only for the purpose, well, two purposes. One, to show itself uncategorically and undeniably. I mean, the first time you send the servants, maybe there was a mistake. They didn't realize he was from the master. The second time you send the servants, oh, they killed them too? Okay, now you've got a pattern. Now you send the son and they kill him? Oh, now you're in trouble. You see how the master, he permits it. He's not condoning it. He permits it. 
so that really the sinners either hang themselves in their sin or wake up to their sin and repent. That's what God's doing. That shows His compassion, folks. Again, He doesn't condone sin, but He will permit us to go in our sin long enough until either we wake up or we repent. I mean, notice here what's happening. By sending three rounds of representatives, the first two build to the final and third from the sun, the wicked tenants, these thieves, these murderers, they show their true unrepentant and self-glorifying nature. That's what's going on in the parable. If you're listening to the parable, by the time you get to this point and the son is now killed, those who are listening must clearly understand that they're, oh, these guys are really, really, really guilty. You see the point of the story? I mean, clearly Jesus is connecting this behavior. We're going to close with this. He's connecting this behavior in the parable and these thieving tenant farmers to Second Chronicles chapter 36, where the history of God, he interacts with the kings of Judah, and, and, and this reveals the true nature of the fallen Judah, the southern kingdom. In Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 16, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. I mean, this is, this is 2 Chronicles 36, talking about why the prophets were coming. Why does God send the prophets? Why does God send the men of God to these wicked kings, to these wicked people? Why does he continually over and over again throughout human history and Israel's history send prophets? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. Why? because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That's why he does it. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. That's Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 16. I mean, God continually sends prophets and servants and messengers according to second chronicles 36:15 because he had compassion on his people just like this master of the house in the parable he continually sends his servants and his slaves to these tenant farmers because he had compassion on them but how do they respond to his compassion they continually mocked the messengers of god they despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people. Why does God's wrath ever rise against his people? Because there was no more remedy left. God is patient. God is just. And he will give sinners repeated opportunity to see their sin. He will see these, I mean, his beloved people the vines of his vineyard. These tenant farmers were responsible for all of this. And he sends his servants and these tenant farmers time and time and time again show their true nature and their selfishness and they go their own way and their actions show their, their greed to the point that a just and holy master of the house, a just and holy God, has no other remedy other than to wipe them out. 
and pour out his wrath. So just as the corrupt kings of Judah that we read about at the latter part of 2 Corinthians, and even the generations before the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, we've been studying this on Wednesday nights, folks, in the, in the Minor Prophets, if you've been here, if you've not picked up on it, a recurring, scene, or a recurring history there, and the scenario is the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. By this time, everything had split and the prophets are there. All of these kings of, of, of Judah and all of these kings of the northern tribes of Israel, they stole the glory of God through his vineyard for themselves. It's what we see in First and Second Corinthians. That's what we see throughout all of the prophets so too these chief priests in Jesus' day who are listening to this parable, they stole the glory of God through His vineyard for themselves too. That's why Jesus is using this parable the way He's doing. He's connecting the history of Isaiah the prophet and all of the prophets and all of the history of Israel with these chief priests and these Pharisees and these scribes. You're no different. You've taken what is mine for yourself. I mean, likewise, can, can we not also apply the lesson of all of this to fallen humanity as well? And we are all a part of fallen humanity, men and women. I mean, while Jesus, the Son of God, does complete the atonement necessary for redemption, many fallen people, might I suggest most, the majority of fallen humanity will continue to rebel against Christ's salvation until there is no remedy. And that's when the final days of judgment will come. Now, Jesus is setting the stage here. Actually, Matthew's gospel, as he, as he tells us of Jesus' ministry, he's really setting the stage for what's going to come in Matthew 24 and following. Wait till we get there, folks. When we start looking at uh, eschatology and the final judgment, Jesus is laying the groundwork even here in this parable. I think we're going to stop here. Is that okay? I've only gone through half of my notes. So we're going to have to go again next week, Nathan, okay? I mean, there's a lot here in this parable. Have y'all soaked it in? I see a lot of people writing notes, and that just warms a pastor's heart. I pray that the Lord speaks to you in His Word. I pray that you take these, these passages home this week and pray through them and meditate through them and you say, Dear Lord, what are you saying to me in this? What are you saying to our church in this? What are you saying to, uh, to the world in this? And let the Lord speak to you in His Word. Don't impose your understanding upon it. Let Him speak to you and show you His understanding of it. There's a lot here, folks. So with that, let, let's, let's close in prayer. Father God, uh, we, we pause here at the end of your word, and, and Lord, thank you so much for giving us meat to chew on. Father God, your, your, your compassion and your love for us is overwhelming. Yet you do not suffer fools lightly. You do not permit thieves and murderers to continually take what is yours. And so God, as Jesus is confronting these chief priests and these Pharisees and who confronted Him, Lord, we see His authority here. We see His sovereign power here. And I pray, God, that You would allow us to understand that and to feel the glorious weight of it. 
I pray all of us who hear these words of yours uh, here in Matthew's gospel, Lord, I pray that we would sense and understand and feel the weight of your sovereignty, which involves compassion, but also judgment and expectation. Jesus has expectation of the tenants of his kingdom. And I pray to God, as if we are failing you in that responsibility, you would challenge us and you would persuade us and you would reveal to us where we stand before your awesome, sovereign power. Lord, there are many in this room and there are many who may be listening to this now who do not understand that weight. They, they have never understood their sin and they have never come to an, a, a realization that Jesus Christ died for them. And I pray, God, through these words, through your word, you would just impose your the weight of your glory and the weight of your spirit upon their souls, and you would bring them to repentance. All of us, Lord, need to hear this. Help us to understand how to love you because you love us so much first. You have given us all that we need. And how dare we steal more from you? Lord, I pray for this time that as we close this hour of worship that you would just pour out your spirit upon us. Pour out your spirit upon our souls, Father. Help us to feel that you love us and that you do care for us, but you do have expectations of us. Let us feel you, Lord. Reveal yourself to us even now as we close. Accept our song of praise for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.